0: Welcome to Twill, The Week in Health Law, the surveillance podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on June 13th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University of McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, accompanied as always by my co-host Frank Pasquale, law professor at University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, this week on A Breakthrough Twill, we're pleased to welcome Professor Deborah Lupton. Professor Lupton is a centenary research professor associated with the News and Media Research Center in the Faculty of Arts and Design at the University of Canberra, Australia. She's a multidisciplinary researcher with a particular interest in the sociology of health. Professor Lupton is a prolific scholar, 15 books and counting, I think, and she's truly active on social media. Indeed, check out her uh, interesting blog, This Sociological Life. Big welcome to the pod, Deborah, and no pressure being our first Australian guest. Oh, thanks a lot. Great to be here. So I just finished your latest book, uh, The Quantified Self, and it's terrific. A great read, really interesting stuff. Health law and policy people like us, we encounter many social scientists in their work, uh, probably a few too many are actually, but certainly historians and, of course, uh, all U.S. health law people are familiar with Paul Starr's socio-historical work. I wondered, as a way of sort of grounding our discussion, could you start by explaining your perception uh, of the work or role of the sociologist in examining, in, in this case, part of our digital society and give us a sense maybe of the frameworks that your discipline brings to bear and, and hence the value it adds to our understanding of some very complex worlds that you describe in the book.
1: Yes, sure, Nick. Well, sociology tends to take often, well, particularly in the British and Australian context, tends to take a very critical approach to the way that the society operates. So we like to stand back often and be provocateurs and ask difficult questions and look at issues around um, social disadvantage and how power relations are um, reproduced via various social social institutions, social groups and so on. So if you apply a sociological perspective to digital society, then what we're really trying to do is, is ask those difficult questions, look at unexamined assumptions, um, ask where power relations are being exerted and how they're being responded to or resisted or challenged or, or otherwise not. Um, how powerful groups in society maintain their power or how they may actually start to be a little bit undermined by the way that digital technologies are being used. So, for example, I've been interested in computer technologies for quite a long time, ever since personal computers were around. So back in the 90s, I was interested in, for example, how people came to include personal computers into their everyday lives, into their work practices, how they even may have given personalities and names to their computers as a way of becoming familiar with these new technologies. So that's another area that I've always been interested in is just how when we're getting these new technologies coming out all the time um, just how people respond to them and, and how they incorporate them into their everyday lives um, and so that's how I became interested in the quantified self because that's that's a very intimate way that people are incorporating these digital technologies into their lives.
0: With specific regard to the quantified self book what did you learn your Self from from looking at this topic, but that perhaps surprised you.
1: Well, when I first started thinking about the quantified self, I think it was I came across an online news article about people who who were beginning to identify with this movement called the quantified self, and there's that that began the, quanti- the whole quantified self terminology began back in 2007, so it's been around for about nine years now, and um, it started in Silicon Valley with two editors of Wired magazine, and they started noticing that their colleagues and friends were starting to use wearable technology or apps or soft other forms of software to track elements of their lives using these kinds of digital technologies and so they actually came up with this term, the quantified self, and started to arrange meetups in their, um, in their homes and then in meeting halls as, as this group became larger and um, developed a website called the quantified self. And now there's international conferences and there's meetups all over the world. So it's really expanded in those nine years since it first was really invented, this movement. Um, and so I, a few years ago, I guess it would have been about three years ago, I started noticing seeing that there was a lot of media coverage of the quantified self or quantifying the self, whatever the term might be. Um, And so I looked more into it. I looked into the website. I looked at how people were talking about it and using this concept. And so that was what interested me from the start was this notion that if you uh, monitor and measure aspects of your bodies and your lives, then what does that begin to do in terms of how you think about yourself and your body um, and your social relationships with others? Then I became aware that more and more domains of social life were encouraging people to self-track so it became beyond a sort of personal pursuit to something that people may have been started to be encouraged to do in the workplace for example or in the school So it seems to me now that the the, the notion of self-tracking using digital devices has really proliferated and it's beginning it's it's proliferating more and more as you know each each year.
0: How do you figure in to this sort of popular cultural representations. Um, you know, the character Data, who's the cyborg in Star Trek, for example, or the relationship between the man Theodore and the computer Samantha in the movie Her. Um, I ask this because I think. Uh, a lot of our digital space, you talk about hybrid beings as where where persons are collecting information, data about themselves and using it. But uh, increasingly, um, I think th- this hybrid uh, is also uh, uh, through our interactions with what we sometimes refer to as personal data assistants. Um, so, you know, Siri on the iPhone or the watch or um, Alexa on the, uh, the Amazon. Amazon Echo. Um, these are sort of interactive agents that are sold as having personal characteristics, even personalities, and, and and I think they tend to become further anthropomorphized as we use them.
1: Yes, I think that's true, but I think that even when we're talking about the, the original research I was doing 20 years ago, that I found a very similar thing just with personal computers. I think humans, and they didn't use um, you know alluring female voices to speak to us, but humans have this <laughs> tendency that that we we that's the way that we become familiar with unfamiliar items. And a, and a new digital device is an unfamiliar item. We may forget now just how new and, and strange a personal computer was back in the late 1980s when people started to, to really use them a lot. But it was a new technology. People were having to learn just what this thing was, how it, how it could be used, how it could be incorporated into their lives. And often we, we do this by giving human-like characteristics, even to something like a personal computer and I think, um, I think as we are now wearing these technologies on our bodies as in the form of a, a bracelet or a, um, a smartwatch, um, we, you know there are now um, smart tablets that you can swallow so they go inside your body and it, it, it signals come out from inside your body onto an, a patch on your arm so these some of these medical technologies are actually go right inside the body um, and they literally make, make us cyborgs um, but I think what's happening now is that not only do we have this very intimate relationship with these technologies because they are literally carried or worn or are inside our bodies, which means that they do become almost like prosthetics of the body. Um, What is also very interesting is that the digital data that these technologies generate about ourselves also, I think, come to have a very intimate relationship with us. So, So some people use the term data doubles. I prefer the term data assemblage. Um, But whatever we're going to call them, these are conglomerations of personal data about very intimate aspects of our lives that have been collected, Um, whether we're searching online, whether we're purchasing things, whether we're wearing a digital self-tracking device. However we interact online, um, there are these reams of of very personal data being collected about ourselves. And I think we're only now really coming to terms with just what these data tell us about ourselves, um, what other People can tell about us from these data, um, and I think the quantified self is right in the middle of all that because people are trying to trying to use these data um, in useful ways for themselves. But as I said, um, other actors and agencies are also now trying to use these data for their own purposes.
0: Yes, and that's certainly a big issue for us. Just before we leave the sort of the hybrid being this sort of intersection of software, hardware, and wetware, um, how is this? from your perspective changing if at all our sort of conception of personhood or selfhood
1: well I'm um What I see from my own research, so I have since writing the book, The Quantified Self, I've actually uh, been engaged in a project that does talk to people about self-tracking and it's actually cyclists who who use wearable tech or put a bike computer on their bike to track their cycling trips. And what I'm finding from this research is that it's a very interesting interaction that people have in terms of how they sense their bodies and their activities on the bike using their human senses um, and how how they can sort of feel about what they feel about their bodies through their senses and how they then bring that knowledge, which of course we've had forever, how they bring that knowledge to their interpretation of the digital data that they're that their um, digital devices are telling them about their rides and their bodies. So so these people are quantifying themselves, um, they're quantifying their trips, their their heart rate, how many kilometres they may have cycled, what the cadence was, um, what the incline was that they cycled on. For example, lots of different things about both their bikes and their bodies. And in fact, there's an intersection there of, of the bike machine, the human body, and the machines that are tracking both of them, which are really, really interesting from a sociological perspective. And, um, and it's, it's really interesting when people talk about, for example, how they use their bike computer that they might be have on their handlebars as they're riding. They're seeing what their bike computer is telling them about the ride. They may change their ride as they're cycling in real time in response to those data, but they also may make sense of the data in relation to what their body's telling them as well. So what the bike computer doesn't tell them is just how strong the wind is, for example. That's what their human senses of their body is telling them. Um, So we're getting very interesting intersections there between the interpretation that people make of the data that that these um, technologies return to them um, in response to their own sensations as they're actually riding through space with these devices. So there hasn't been a huge amount of Work yet that's looked at those intersections, but I think um, there's a great scope for doing even further work because because there is now um, so many domains where people are using these kinds of self-tracking devices, and we still don't really understand how they interpret these data and just how they then change their lives in response to these data.
0: Oh That's fascinating. And it, just in passing, um, I don't know whether you're familiar, but with this, but there was a um, a lawsuit that went, that was brought unsuccessfully on the West Coast with uh, against a an app that was being used by sort of extreme bikers uh, questioning whether in fact the app was driving uh, folks beyond their abilities and so on, which is sort of another of those sort of intersections. And I, I clearly see that there's a Another book in your near future, talking about uh, virtual uh, reality and uh, the uh, the additional steps that that's going to take us away from the the sort of the person as as we know him or her at the moment. Let's turn to the uh, uh, the chapter that you entitle an an optimal human being, and this is the human being who uh, m- monitors in order to sort of self optimize the self. And uh, we have a lot of interest on the side of the Pacific in uh, what uh, we call the engaged patient. This is something that comes up in comparative effectiveness research projects, um, employer or insurer encouraged uh, wellness or fitness plans, and so on. What can you tell us about the the engaged or the quantified patient?
1: Ah, uh, yes, that's another one of my big interests, actually. And the the book I'm working on at the moment, which I'm almost finished, thanks, Willie, is is on um, digital health specifically um, and critical perspectives on digital health, because I think um, there's been a lot of very techno utopian Um, visions of what digital health technologies can offer people. Um, And part of that is this notion of the engaged patient. But again, if you bring in a sociological perspective, it's far more complicated than that. It's not just about um, this fabulous idea of patients going out and becoming incredibly active and aware and knowledgeable. It's very, very complex. So um, I should note that the the title the the optimal human is in scare quotes so it is a quotation from one of the more <laughs> utopian uh, representations of what self-tracking can offer people because that this it's this notion of optimizing the self is very very dominant in the quantified self discourses if you look at popular you know if you look at the quantified self website or other discussions news news articles about it and so on or even if you look at what people say themselves when they're using self-tracking technology they do often talk about that, that that's why they're engaging in self-tracking. They're looking to improve their lives, to make themselves better people, to have better bodies, more healthy bodies, more fit, productive bodies, to have a more productive um, work life, for example, or even control their moods. Lots of different aspects that they're looking to improve about themselves. Um, And if you do look more specifically about the engaged patient um, discourse, then that, that is interesting because... You do see a lot of talk about the engaged patient or the activated patient is a term that's used often in North America as well, which makes me, kind of reminds me of, I don't know, it's an interesting terminology, activating someone, you know, an activated person. Um, Sounds like you almost have to push a button to get them activated. Um, (laughs) But anyway, I prefer the term engaged, engaged patient. So that implies, and and you know, this notion of the consumerist patient, someone who is actively seeking out knowledge about their condition and working, to, working with healthcare providers to improve their health condition rather than being a passive recipient of healthcare. That's been around for a long time now and it's been promoted by patient consumerist movements as not just healthcare providers themselves, also from the perspective of the patient. The idea that you know, as a patient, people should not have to just passively accept the Uh, the authority of the medical practitioner so that's been around probably since the 1970s that whole idea of the the engaged patient what we're seeing now is in the context of digital health technologies is this what i call the digit digitally engaged patient which is the patient who does um actively use digital technologies they use google to as you know most people do anyway to search information if they're feeling some symptoms and they're wondering what's going on um maybe self diagnosing using that sort of searching or even a self-diagnosis app um, and um, I think from, from my reading of the medical literature, so if you look at um, medical journals, there's a bit of ambivalence there amongst healthcare providers. On the one hand, they do support the idea that patients should be not just passive recipients of, of what doctors tell them. On the other hand, there's been quite a lot of concern about you know, the so-called Dr. Google um, and the fact that patients are getting know. Inaccurate advice from online media. Um, there's also been the condition of cyberchondria that's been invented. <laughs> In the medical literature, which, which refers to the to sort of over-anxiety that people might have from going online and finding out inaccurate or even too much information that might be accurate about their condition. So there's a very fine line I'm seeing amongst in the medical literature at least about the idea that yes, it's really great that patients should be engaged, they should be taking, you know, taking responsibility for their health care and their condition. Which, of course, is a very, very sort of neoliberal approach as well. That people should, that citizens should be taking responsibility, responsibility for their health. But on the other hand, too much of that can actually start to challenge medical authority and medical dominance. You know, and and we we have got many examples now online, of course, of patient support networks where where patients do interact with each other and do share knowledge. So the so that's been facilitated. That kind of um, engaged patienthood has very much been facilitated by the on. The onset of digital media.
2: Well, thank you, Deborah. In the United States context, many of these quantification programs are being deployed in what's called wellness programs. One of the legal concerns here is a worry about coercion. Do you feel that quantified self-tracking technology can lead to feelings of coercion when deployed in the employment context?
1: Yes, I do. That's one thing I do talk about quite a lot in the book. And so I identify different modes of self-tracking. And uh, one of them is the private mode, which is basically someone just choosing for themselves that they want to self-track. And, you know, many people do find that works for them and achieves goals that they've set for themselves. But then I have what I call the pushed and the imposed modes of self-tracking. And there's a very, you know, blurry line between those two because, you know, we can ask the question, when does pushed or encouraged self-tracking, which may be encouraged um, by your um, employer, and as you say, particularly in the North America, well, in the US context where um, a lot of people's healthcare and health insurance are covered by their employers, there's that very strong relationship between the whole idea of corporate wellness and let's save the employers money on healthcare coverage, which of course we don't have in a lot of other um, Western countries where there's more socialized forms of healthcare coverage and healthcare delivery. So it is a very particularly American phenomenon that this idea that um, as part of being a productive worker, you are a healthy productive worker and you're not costing your employer too much as well in healthcare insurance. Um, and healthcare coverage. So I think that we do see that in that particular example where, you know, there are deals being offered by tracking, -tracking, self-tracking device developers with workplaces um, about, you know, selling their devices as part of corporate wellness programs. I think, you know, we really have to stand back and say, well, where where does this sort of encouraged or pushed, as I call it, self-tracking, where people have been encouraged to engage in self-tracking as part of the workplace corporate wellness programs? Programs, where does that become imposed? And if and it, I would I would argue that it definitely becomes more coercive or imposed on people if they feel, for, for example, that you know their employer is really expecting to, them to do this, um, that there's peer pressure from their their workmates or their supervisors. Um, so you know on the on the outside it might look like they have a choice and it's voluntary, but really if you look at it, they feel like they may not have a choice in engaging in self tracking. And if if they start to be Um, asked to um, pay more for their health insurance policy, then I would argue that does become imposed um, because, you know, you, they're actually being um, punished by having to pay higher premiums if they don't engage in these self-tracking programs. And it's interesting that even here in Australia, um, health insurance, cover- health insurance um, companies aren't allowed to directly ask people to upload their their fitness tracking um, data, but they offer other incentives as part of loyal- loyalty reward, reward programs um, and life insurance companies are able to do that and they're beginning to do that and I think that's the direction, to me it seems like it's the direction of insurance for life insurance, health insurance, that we're going to be moving and we are already moving towards this very customised policy Um, calculations that are based on individuals um, health and fitness self-track data i can really see that we're moving in that direction and i think people really need to be aware of that and to start thinking about what the implications are for social inequality and for further disadvantaging people who may not have the resources to um, engage in um, the kind of health related activities that are required of them if they sign up to these
0: sorts of programs yes and of course because it, it it really changes how you look at insurance as well, of moving away from community rating to individual rating, which is uh, really sort of stands the insurance uh, model as we've always understood it and kind of uh, encouraged it kind of on its head.
2: In the United States, there is a recurrent emphasis on meeting certain numerical goals. For example, having a BMI under 25. Is this a global phenomenon or one that seems more common in certain areas? More broadly, are there significant geographic variations in the quantification of selfhood?
1: Well, I think the move towards metricisation of people's bodies and their lives um, is definitely a global phenomenon, at least for the Western world, where we have the privilege of worrying about that sort of thing and focusing on those sorts of aspects um, of our lives. So we are finding that we have what some people call an audit culture now, and I I would argue that the quantified self is part of this audit culture where we, um, as individuals or as social groups or as institutions or any other kind of group um, are being asked constantly to monitor and measure ourselves, and then reflect upon those metrics in different ways. And you, you see it more and more in academia, for example. So we now have Google Scholar, where which metricizes um, our our publications and how often they're cited. And we have no choice over that; Google automatically does that for us. But what's that? That has led to uh, to these sorts of citation indices being now um, incorporated into academic working lives and promotion policies and whether or not people get research grants. So that's just one example of how metricisation and the audit culture has moved into the kind of workplace that I work in and that you work in. Um, but it's moved into many other um, workplaces. It's moved into the education system um, so that schools are often ranked and rated and um, different classes within schools and different school children within the classes now because there are now these, these forms of software where you can do that sort of thing. You can get these fine-grained detail on, for example, how children are learning in lots of different ways. Um, you can even see when they're interacting on a um, on an app for a particular learning, um, directed at a particular learning outcome, how long they spend on a page or an activity. You know, we're getting that sort of very fine grain detail about, about learning. So um, I would say that from, from my stance here in Australia, from outside the US, I, I think what is happening Happening is that um, the U.S. does tend to have a very – it does tend to have that very entrepreneurial – Um, aspect to everyday life and the working life and even outside the work the idea that you're the entrepreneur of yourself for example if you're trying to optimize your your health or your fitness or your social relationships is is probably comes out most strongly in the u.s context which which also has a far more individualized context than some of the other western societies where there's a more sort of um social security approach or social support approach which we do see for example in the way that healthcare is delivered in other western countries compared to the US. So I think the US is a particularly sort of strong example of this entrepreneurial um, and metricized self because they intersect in many interesting ways together there but we we definitely see it in other western countries so um, it's not as if the US is alone in this. Um, I think it's this idea that the more information you can collect about people the better it is because you can then make decisions about those people or they can make decisions about themselves which can then improve their performance or improve their health and fitness and well-being in general that is a very dominant idea that we have now in western cultures about about selfhood um, about who are considered ideal citizens and who aren't about who is then taking responsibility for their health and productivity and and well-being and who aren't. And a lot of that does pin on this idea that if we can generate enough information, then people can then use those that information and act upon it.
2: In the conclusion of the book, you discuss a design anthropologist who tried to make apps more accessible to underprivileged populations. Bryce Peak, that anthropologist, called this a decolonized app design. Who does she believe currently colonizes app designs? Do you believe her efforts were successful or could be in the future?
1: Well, that word decolonized is a very culturally specific one because she was talking about um, she was talking about minority cultures in the North American context and if, 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 if you take the Australian context it might be Aboriginal people here in Australia who are very mm-hmm. uh, marginalized um, and so she was she was talking about minority cultures where, where these, these cultures often feel as if the dominant culture, the dominant European slash white culture, has come in and told told members of these groups, um, we are collecting information about you for our own purposes and this information has traditionally, of course, been used to, to exert greater domination and control over the minor- minority groups. Um, so what she was finding was some resistance to the idea that um, an act might be used to collect information because it was seen as yet another example of this dominant white european culture trying to use collect information and use it for their own purposes Um, and you know we if you look i mean i've done i've done research analyzing apps that looks at that look at reproduction and sexuality self-tracking and you can very much see the mindset that goes into most apps you can see that most apps come out of a very particular cultural context which is the Silicon Valley context it is the white male uh, privileged highly educated context um, so this is something that this researcher was picking up as well that you know I, I, I argue in some of the work that I do on apps is that we need to see apps as socio-cultural artifacts they're not just these technologies that that come to us without any assumptions or cultural notions um, ingrained in them because like any technologies they are generated by humans humans who are making certain decisions based on their own acculturation and their own mindsets and their own experiences and their own perspectives. And apps are no different from any other form of technology, including software, whether we're talking hardware or software in terms of computer technology. So I actually think there's, a there's again, there's a, there's a very interesting domain of inquiry there, looking at the way that apps reproduce certain assumptions about certain social groups, whether it's gendered assumptions, for example, which is something I've focused on Focused on, so I've done an analysis of pregnancy apps with my colleague Gareth Thomas from from Cardiff University, and what we found was that there was a very strong focus there on on the traditional idea of the of the woman who was pregnant as being a heterosexual partnered with a male partner. Woman who um, was absolutely wanting every every bit of information that she could find about her pregnancy. She was not ambivalent about her pregnancy. Uh, she was not kind of not that interested in her pregnancy. This this woman, as represented in pregnancy apps, was the you know the the idealized, responsibilized, engaged patient pregnant woman, um, and there was very little. Um, acknowledgement in the apps that we looked at that this woman may be ambivalent about being pregnant she may not be that interested about her pregnancy uh, she may be um, a single a single mother she may be in a lesbian relationship and so on so those kind of diversity of, of pregnant women um, is not acknowledged and if you look at the way that fathers are represented in these apps well you know that they're, Again, a very dominant notion of, of, a, of a father um, appeared in the apps um, when he did appear, which was not that often because most of these apps were, were directed at women. But when fathers were represented in these apps, it was very much the bumbling idiot who had to be, you know, had to be led kicking and screaming into being interested in pregnancy and had to be talked down to and, um, you know, you had to use jokey sort of humour to get them interested. So, you know, even if you just look at that genre of apps, pregnancy apps, you can always already start to see the sorts of assumptions um, and stereotypes that are embedded in these apps. So, um, and this this happens because there's a certain culture that produces these apps. um, And and so if you're attempting to decolonize these apps or destruct them in in other sorts of ways and and look for alternative ways, then um, you do need to firstly be aware of those embedded assumptions that are already there, and then start to think about, well, okay, um, what are alternative ways of developing apps that aren't um, reproducing these kinds of very, um, often very constrictive assumptions about people, um, that do acknowledge diversity, that do perhaps acknowledge that people might be ambivalent or starting to become a bit worried about how much information is collected on them by technologies such as apps um, and and that do address the issue around the whole data privacy and security And and I'm finding in my only Research, that people are slowly becoming aware of those issues and of data privacy and security, and are are thinking about you know how how those issues come out in the apps that they download. It's it's been a slow and gradual process, but is it is beginning to happen. And I think app developers do need to start being aware that people, the, the general public, are be, are becoming more concerned about just how much information is being collected about them and what the app developers do with this
0: information. Yes, that's a huge part of the discussion going on here. You mentioned, and this is uh, related, you you mentioned in the book algorithmic decision-making and so on. In their big data book, Victor Mayer-Schonberger and Kenneth Cuvier refer to constant data-driven predictions uh, that may take over from our own decision-making and that perhaps we cannot readily explain whether we're lawyers, doctors, or sociologists. And also, sort of, as part of that world, the substitution of causation, which we've always kind of relied upon for decision-making by correlation. Your thoughts on, on those ideas?
1: Uh, well, again, you're getting this techno-utopian discourse around big data. Um, and again, there's often quite a bit of ambivalence there as well, which is interesting. So if if you look at the way that big data have been talked about in, say, the past five years, where there's really been a big focus on, on what big data can offer society. On the one hand, you do have those types, you know, the big data revolution type of discourse and, and how big data can change the way we, we learn about the world and about, about ourselves and about societies. Um, and, you know, a lot of that was very uncritical. It was this just this notion of, look, we've got all these data, wow, you know, it can do all these sorts of things. I think, again, there's been a little bit of dampening of that more recently when people have begun to realise that, well, you know, Know, correlation can 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 obscure a lot of what's going on, and so if you're only interested in looking in correlation, then that that is a very superficial way of understanding um, events, which in fact often can be very misleading. And I've I've actually noticed that even amongst data science. Um, you know, people talking about data science on blogs, for example, or people talking in, on commercial-related blogs about big data, there has been a bit of a turn back to what some people call small data because they argue that big data just, yes, it's big, it's, it, it does offer a lot of um, potential there in terms of you've got a lot of data points to work with, but you can often get swallowed up in this data and, and that's a terminology that's often used. There's a tsunami of data or an ocean of data and we're all draining in it um, and there's that ambivalence coming out that people often don't know what to do with these data. There's just too much of it and it's very hard to make sense of the massive amounts of data that are around. And so in some cases, people are turning more towards small, fine-grained data that um, that they can actually work better with. Um, so, you know, there has... In the social sciences, it's been interesting because there's been a bit of anxiety around, well, if, if, any, if, if the, the internet empires are collecting all these data, then they can crunch the data and they can know more about social behaviors than we can, because we don't have access to those data, because it's siloed by, um, in the internet empire's da- databases. Um, but but again, there's been a reflection on that as well, and saying, well, you know, as social scientists, for example, we we have been trained for many years, you know, for over the history of our professions, of our disciplines, to to be very aware of what the um, and bad things are about different modes of collecting data and interpreting and analysing data. We're actually specialists in that because that's what we do and that's what we've always done. Um, and we can offer a lot there um, in terms of saying, well, look, okay, there's there might be a massive big uh, data set there. What does it actually tell us? What can it tell us? What are, the, what are the assumptions that are built into the data set by the algorithms that have been used to, to um, construct the data and analyse the data? Um, what are the implications of, of the algorithmic authority that is being inserted by this software. Um, there are lots of really interesting and again provocative questions that we can ask about the whole big data phenomenon and which we are beginning to ask and there's, there's there's a very interesting interdisciplinary subfield beginning to develop called critical data studies where not only sociologists but cultural geographers historians internet studies culture studies people they're all starting to to ask these sorts of anthropologists is another example they're all starting to ask these these questions and um, cast a critical rely on, on both big data and small data and the intersections between the two and the implications of both. And I think in this world of, you know, apparently, you know, it's been said that, the, that data science is the new sexy profession. Um, well, I would argue that social data science or critical data science from a social perspective, well, I mean, we need way more of that as well. And I, and I think for those people who are interested in the social sciences and legal legal aspects as well, I, which I would incorporate. Into the social sciences, then that is a it's a key area of research um, and inquiry that um, is only going to become more key as, as we
0: progress into this datafied world. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Lupton for joining us. Uh, she can be found on Twitter at DA Lupton, D A L U P T O N. Super fun having you with us, Deborah. Thanks, Nick,
1: it was a pleasure.
0: We post our show notes at Tor.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, of course, is at Frack Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.